All right, welcome everybody back to the PHLY Sixers show. Derek Bonner joined by Kyle Newbeck. You know, we've got uh, some tiny bit of news. We've got some injury updates, maybe. we got a preview Boston. you got to make me wear some stupid hats. we got some <laughs> trade. Derek's favorite part of every week is when I would make them wear stupid hats. we got some trade rumors to discuss. How are you doing, Kyle? Well, you know, I did just see you... Not quite 12 hours I pretty ago, much but... saw you, went to sleep, woke up, and saw you again, which isn't necessarily how I would typically want to structure my day, but I do enjoy the fact that we have some Sixers basketball. Talk. Not how good. I don't know how good it is for our both of our mental healths, but, you know. If only we had a third person who could join the show. <laughs> I'm doing well, though. You know, it's we have at least a little bit of news to talk about, which you're always hoping for when you do a post-game show and then see on the schedule, oh, hey, we have another... Sixer show to do today. Yep. Um, so where do you want to start, Eric? Do you want to start with? Well, do you want to start with the immediate in terms of what actually impacts the team, or do you want to start with the speculative? I want to start with the speculative. Right, we'll get to, we we'll get to the news at some point. Like, who, who needs news? Who we're, needs? We're who not, who needs? Who's going to talk about? Or who, who needs to know who's going to play in tomorrow's game? It's all pointless. We have some Toronto Raptors to discuss, <laughs> which we definitely have not done at all in the history of this show. Um, so I guess you know there was an article for Michael Scotto over at Hoopsype, where he basically went through every team and listed the, the players most likely to be dealt uh, in the coming months. For the Sixers, it wasn't necessarily a surprise. It was all of their expiring contracts that they acquired. They're at the top of the list. He mentioned um, in terms of people the Sixers might target, primarily uh, the ones mentioned were Dorian Finney-Smith, OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam. Is there anyone there that I'm missing from that group? I think Levine, there might be one more. Levine, sure. I think you and I have both shot down that, that idea a hundred yep. times, so we can probably just leave We have Levine. only talked about the Raptors players 99 times, so we will include those <laughs> in this list. I don't think there's anything necessarily too shocking. Like, Finney Smith is the one that we haven't discussed the most, um, so maybe we start there, but he's also the least interesting. Maybe, perhaps the most realistic, but the least interesting. Um, you know, he's a guy who's shooting real well from three this year, had a down year last year. He was shooting in the low thirties from three, but before that he was a pretty good three point shooter. You know what? Certainly like in terms of a, a bigger wing player, bigger forward fits, you want that shooting. Uh, I have not been impressed by his defensive play so far this year. You don't know whether or not that is just the team he's playing for or system he's in, but he's interesting. What was the listed price there that Scotto had for him? Yeah. So this high. is kind of where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. I, I would guess. So Scotto says the rival executives expect the Nets to continue to have a high asking price worth the equivalent of two first round picks if they trade him with the hope that the asking price will drop closer to the trade deadline. I mean, that's pretty obvious. There is absolutely, I mean, I'm not going to put my reputation at stake because you never know, but if they get two real first round picks for Dorian Finney-Smith, I don't know what has happened in the that world. That is like, mighty big of you to think that you have a reputation to uphold. <laughs> Well, the show at least has a reputation to uphold. <laughs> I don't know what the reputation is. We do have a awesome show. Great job from Dave in the chat. So I don't uh, know how awesome it could be when we're three minutes into it, but I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. the kind words. Um, yeah. No, look, Finney Smith, like I said, I think his defense has not been as locked in as it was in prior years. Uh, you know, he was a pretty good two-way player in the past. He probably can be again. Um, he's a guy who has gotten to where he was. Was he undrafted, I think, or was he a second-round pick? I uh, thought he was a late second-round guy. Might have been. I forget I exactly. But he's, you know, he's a guy who came in the league uh, and really had to prove his way. And he did that with pretty good, like I said, I'm going to air quote 3 and D because he's not an elite three-point shooter. He's not a lockdown defender. But he's a contributor on both of those aspects. 
there's no way he's get it. you're getting two first round picks no. for a guy in Finney Smith who has two years left on his contract after this one. Not a terrible contract, but it's still guaranteed money for or I think one of them might be a player option. Guaranteed money for one more year, a player option after that. You're not getting two first round picks. Now, granted, it is November still. You've got months until the trade deadline. You expect that to come down. If it ends up being like a fake first round at the deadline and you don't have any other options, maybe you can consider it. But two first round picks is astronomical. There's no way. There's no way. So let's go over the positives with Finney Smith. He's increased his three-point volume. He's up to about six a game, and he's shooting the lights out this year. He typically has been seeing that like 35 to 37, like average to above average range. He's making 44% of his threes on six attempts per game. Which makes you think, like, is he just trying to sell out high when he's on a hot streak? Yeah, Yeah. and and that would be the concern is you never want to – especially shooting, which in smaller samples can be very volatile. You don't want to overpay because, oh, the guy's having a career best shooting year. And as we saw with Tobias Harris, when you go yeah. from... Well, even even in larger numbers, it can be extremely volatile. Look, look, look at Finney Smith, 2018-19, 31%. The next two years, he shot 37.6, yeah. 39.4, 39.5. That's three years I can't add or I can't math. Uh, and then he had another year, 33.7 and then 44.1. So he's really been up and down, even though he had three pretty consistent years in the middle of that. It's still year to year it can be pretty volatile. And when you get into a sample size of like how many three-point attempts are we talking about with that 44%? 100, 102. That's very small. And this is one thing you're running a lot scouting the draft. Even 100, even a 200, even a full season sample can be misleading. You don't want to overpay based on results that don't jive with the rest of his career. And again, I think he's a good three-point shooter. Like the 37, 39, that's probably what you can expect from him on average with a down year here, uh, up year there. 44, you can't count on that. You just can't. Yeah. There's no way. And I, so I kind of put him, you tell me whether you think this is fair or unfair. I think he's similar-ish to a Covington where the vast majority of his shot attempts are going to be threes. You're yeah. not going to ask him to create a whole lot. To your point about his defense this year. You I know, don't. How much do you think, what percentage of his shot diet do you think is from three-point range? I see you I'd have say like I see, three quarters of it. If I had well, to. And I give you credit because you have, I see his basketball reference page on your screen. You didn't scroll down to get the exact number. So yeah. you didn't cheat the system. 67.1% this yeah. year. So like, yep. look, he's not a guy who's going to take you off the bounce. It's why when he played next to somebody in Luka Doncic in Dallas, I think that's when he really came into his own during his career because Luka could just create everything and he just yep. stands there and he's ready to shoot. So that worked out well for him. I don't think he necessarily has a, I mean, if Harden was still here, maybe he makes some more sense. But I think the big thing and the reason the Sixers probably steer away from him is the future money. Like he's got, it's not a little bit of money. He's going to make over $14 million next season. And then he's got a player option for over 15 a year after that. And, you know, look, if they were to make a series of trades at the deadline, that they're not hoarding the cap space anymore. They're saying we're, right. we're pushing our chips in and we're getting like the guy or the third guy that's next to Tyrese and Joel, then you could say, okay, with what's left over, maybe we do get a Finney Smith, and now he's part of the core for the next two seasons, whatever it is, a season and a half, we could say for sure. Then that makes more sense. But in the position they're in where that move hasn't happened yet, I just I don't really see it. I don't see the, uh, the logic to you it. You stole exactly what I was going to say. If you get to the trade deadline, you have another trade lined up where you no longer care about that cap space, then you can look at smaller deals like this where you give up maybe, a like I said, a protected first. You have an extra one to spare. Mm-hmm. Maybe that major move that you had didn't end up costing you all of your assets so you have something to play with. Then you can look at something like this where you can match salary, 
add an additional, because we, we've talked about in the past how Daryl does like to take his expiring contracts, turn them into similar role players who have you know one or two extra years on their contract. He likes doing that, just not in a situation where he might need that cap space in a couple months if he strikes out at the trade deadline. So this isn't the kind of move that you would make now, for sure. And it's not a move that's ever going to be made for two first-round picks. But if you get to the trade deadline, you have your major move lined up. You know now you're not going to have cap space anymore. And also, you know, Brooklyn comes down off their asking price. Sure, something like this. Like I said, a role player with more years left on his contract could become appealing, but the situation has to change. Circumstance has to change around that trade. And right now it has not. Yeah, so two guys that might change the situation a little bit if the Sixers were to trade for them. The Toronto Raptors players that, as Derek mentioned, we've probably discussed 99 times at this point. But not point. 100, so we'll keep going. One of them more so than the other. Uh, and in Mike Scotto's report over at Hoops Hype, which you guys can go read for yourselves, name drops Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi once again. And I got a real kick out of, <laughs> there's a paragraph in there. It says, after losing Kawhi in free agency, Kyle Lowry to the Heat, and Precious Achua and Goran, or four Precious Achua and Goran Dragic, and then losing Fred Van Vliet to the Rockets in free agency. Toronto is concerned about potential teams who could give Ananobi a shorter term max contract. It's like, buddy, you should have been concerned about losing all those players at the time. Like, I don't know why you're extra motivated, motivated to keep OG because other guys left in free agency. You should always be planning for. You're not going to re-sign these guys, and it seemed like at no point was there a realistic chance to bring Lowry back or bring, yeah. I guess Kawhi was sort of up in the air, but not really. The, the writing was on the wall for that one. And Van Vliet, they weren't giving the money to. So, I don't know. That part struck me as very funny as a, people have said, a notorious Maasai hater on social media. I mean, look, I'll, I'll give him a little bit of credit from growing from his mistake. Sure, it should have been obvious. Like in you theory, said, in some anyway, of those we don't actually right, know. Right. Um, but Scotto also says uh, up above there uh, where uh, if Toronto is willing to pay up for Siakam, they'll keep him and then be executive opined. I think the same goes for Aninobi too. So he probably believes that he has a good chance of keeping them if he wants them. The question is, you know, is he willing to give them the money that it would take? We don't know that. Masai might not know that, uh, but he will have to by the trade deadline. Yeah. So I think we've said this on the podcast. Siakam, to me, I won't say it's 0%, but seems wildly unrealistic for a bunch of reasons. I don't think he's the cleanest on-court fit, and I think the dynamic with Nurse is not great as well. I don't think he's necessarily signing off on trading for Siakam. So you, I was going to ask that. You think OG fits what the Sixers need and fits alongside it and beat a maxi better? Slightly. I mean... OG I, I is just, definitely a better shooter yeah. and he's definitely a better defender. Siakam can dribble. He can dribble. That helps. And he, he can helpful. make decent decisions, especially because he's got size to pass over the defense. He's a better decision maker. I don't think either of them are perfect as like the final piece, which we've gotten into on the show. Unfortunately, there is no perfect final piece out there right now that's available. Like Levine, for example, he's the most gettable guy, and he is. I don't know if you've watched the Bulls at all oh, recently. Train wreck. But he is like completely checked out. They are infuriating to watch. Infuriating. It's so bad. Like very clearly doesn't want to be there. DeRozan has some nights, but it's mostly just like completely detached basketball. I really feel for the Bulls fans right now who are going through this. Who, you know, they did win six titles in the nineties <laughs> and that was 
probably awesome to go through and it's just been nothing but mediocrity. also a quarter of a century ago yeah nothing but mediocrity at best ever since i wouldn't even call this close to mediocrity no so, and they might have the worst future in the league like there are very few teams that are behind the eight ball like they just are just ugly but yeah I, I feel like og makes sense in a future for toronto that is kind of built around scotty barnes where you're going to hand a lot of those ball handling responsibilities to scotty that siakam has right now and og can be that off ball secondary creator number three type depending on how the rest of the roster shakes out and it makes probably more sense to move Siakam mid-season than Ananobi if that's kind of the plan moving forward but it's hard to get a read on what Masai wants to do ever and frankly like last night they came out and they beat Phoenix and that was pretty much a wire-to-wire win with both Durant and Booker available for Phoenix and you could kind of see the vision in that game from what I could tell of why he wants to keep all those guys together. Like they're a long athletic team that if they can score enough can really suffocate some teams on the perimeter. But yeah, I don't know. I I just, I doubt that Masai is going to put these guys on the table for anything less than a King's ransom. And I just don't think the Sixers are inclined to pay that for various reasons, whether that's the on-court fit, the upside, or Nick signing off on it in the first place, which I just don't think that in Siakam's case specifically, I think OG, that's probably a bit of a better relationship, but I don't know that for sure. I think it's probably a bit of a cleaner fit too. Even if he doesn't have the ball handling that you want, uh, the fact that he is such a versatile defender and is a more reliable, the shooting with Siakam scares me quite a bit as a yeah. third, third at times off ball kind of player. I would certainly like his, creation for minutes when Embiid or Maxi are on the bench but when they're both are all on the court uh, I think the fit is a little more questionable and also I think the league I'm actually a little curious how the league values these two because they're both kind of having a little bit of a down year as Scotty takes on a little bit more of the offensive workload but I feel like the the league there's probably wider interest in Siakam or at least there was maybe coming into this season I don't know if that's changed at all um, but if the if there's wider league-wide interest and he's less of a fit on the Sixers for various reasons that you laid out uh, I do think he is the less likely of the two options. Yeah, so let's uh, take a quick break real quick, and then we'll get back to the trade rumors that Derek never wants to talk about. How about that? Well, we, and then we can transition to the hats that I never want to wear. So there it's you go. a banner it's, it's show. the Derek Bodner show today. It's all about him. We have a new sponsor. Or it's a new sponsor you guys are familiar with, Pennsylvania Dairy Farmers and Team Chocolate Milk. Professional college Cut up athletes. Ad copy there, buddy. Yeah, listen, I'm not anymore. responsible for that copy. I just kind of read it. Professional and college athletes have known about the power of chocolate milk as a refuel and recovery beverage for a long time. Chocolate milk provides high quality protein for muscle repair, electrolytes for hydration, and calcium for strong bones. And that's why studies consistently show chocolate milk is an ideal sports recovery beverage. So whether you're recovering after a workout at the gym, a run around Boathouse Row, or a bike ride on the Schuylkill Trail, Chocolate milk is an ideal post-workout beverage. Taking care of your body doesn't end when the clock hits zero on your workout routine. So give your body what it needs to properly recover. What could be better than a scientifically proven recovery beverage made right here in Pennsylvania that also tastes great? Learn more about how chocolate milk can help you refuel and recover after your next workout by visiting teamchocolatemilk.com. We also want to tell you about Wheelhouse Cards. Wheelhouse is our go-to sports card, gift, and apparel shop in the Delaware Valley. Their motto is cards and community because love of sports unites us all. They carry all of your favorite brand card brands like Topps Chrome Baseball and Mosaic Football, as well as t-shirts, 
Hats and hoodies from brands like Mitchell Ness, 47 Brand Junk Food Starter, and Scheib Vintage Sports. Looking to grade your sports card collection? Wheelhouse offers PSA grading submissions. They also host tons of different family-friendly events and birthday parties every month. Stop into either of their stores in Wayne or Westchester, open seven days per week at 11 a.m. Use code PHLY and get $10 off any purchase of $25 or more in-store. Also, be sure to give them a follow on Instagram at Wheelhouse Cards. So, by the way, Dave in the chat is saying, know what's great? Milk with any dinner, especially spaghetti. I'm not sure that I agree with the last part of that. And I was about to say... I'm not sure. What did you eat when you had pasta growing or what did you drink when you had pasta growing up? Probably there? usually just soda. Cause I was going to say, I did not realize that people drank soda with Italian food or pasta. See, we just drank soda at like every meal. Okay. Well then that makes more sense until I watched the Sopranos and they'd sit down and have a big family style dinner on the Sopranos. And Tony was always drinking a Coke or a diet Coke. Right. And it was like, Wow, I never even thought that you could combine those things. It was like a real eye-opening moment for, I would have been like, when did the Sopranos start? 02, 03? So I probably would have been like 13 or 14, something like that. Yeah, up until that point in my life, I had no idea that that was a uh, a thing. And now I proudly will have a little Coca-Cola with a spaghetti. There you go. No, so we, like I said, we had soda at every meal. It's one of the habits I would love to kick. And I've tried numerous times and I'm not great at that. Wow. Get you on that AG1 or chocolate milk, man. That's, there you that's go. where you kind of head in that direction. Uh, we did have some people name dropping while we're on the Toronto subject, Dennis Schroeder. And yes, he's a guy who could create as a six man type guy. Is also in that category with Finney Smith where he's making $13 million next season. Right. And I don't think he's a good enough player to dent your cap space plans at all for next summer so I, that'd be a thanks but no thanks thing i gotta live up to my end of the uh i also the just don't and say tyus jones that's why he's sure. such a perfect fit <laughs> i also just don't trust his outside shot enough i know he's shooting the ball better that's this true. year but i don't i don't trust that shot uh to like we like we said there can be seasons that can you, someone can shoot well and it can still not be real there can certainly be two months into a season a guy can shoot well and then not be real uh, i do not trust um that outside shot for Schroeder. Gavin also asked how much money for a Gavin, the Philly sports enjoyer ad read. You're gonna have to talk to our sales team on that, Gavin, but I'll, I'll run that up the flagpole and we'll, uh, our people will we'll talk to your people or maybe you directly. Yeah. That's above my pay grade, buddy. <laughs> good thing and is I it, just worry about what we're talking about on the show. The good thing is it's now on the record. So the people listening, uh, they can, they can, we'll have our people reach your people. There you go. All right. You want to transition into some, Real news, as you sure. would say, or well, news the, updates? The major news here is that both Batum and Kelly Uber Jr. were full participants in practice. So presumably, and again, Kyle and I are not on the road, hence why we you can see us in a studio. Uh, presumably, all these are not holograms. Is, I can physically touch there. Presumably, that means they will be available for tomorrow's game against the Celtics. And I assume that you 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 agree that this means Batum is still in the starting lineup. Yeah, I mean, we've gone over that a little bit this week. I think... Honestly, the bigger news, I know that Ubre has been out for a while. I think the bigger deal is that Batum's injury was not bad enough that he's yeah. going to miss time. I think the concern for him to get yanked as quickly as he did and be ruled out last night, I was thinking, oh, he might miss 
you know, whether it's a week, whether it's a couple weeks, whatever it is, I thought he was going to miss some time due to this with how quickly that happened. Maybe it's because they were down 25 points at the time that yeah. they ruled him out. But it was good to hear that Batum is still ostensibly available. And certainly great news that Ubre is on the, the right track and sort of was trending in the same direction that Derek updated you guys earlier this week at practice. But yep, yeah, I, I don't think it's much of a decision at this point, honestly. Like Batum makes sense with the starters and Kelly with that bench group is going to help them out with what they need. Yeah. Um, like we mentioned earlier in the week, Nick ruled uh, Ubre out for last night's game. Always maintained there is a possibility he would play here on Friday, and it looks like he will play on Friday, uh, if, assuming there's no kind of setback or pain or anything associated with that, which I can't imagine they're going to have a full practice here today. So probably uh, he will be good to go. And I agree with you. Like when you look at the overall plus minus of the various starting lineups, it's actually kind of wild. On the season, they're only at like, if you take the, the four consistent starters, you know, Maxi Melton, Harris, and Embiid. With any lineup combination, I think they're like a plus four in like 700 and something possessions. That's not good for starting lineups. Certainly yeah. not good for an Embiid starting lineup. But there were two that have been really good, and that was the one with PJ where they were like a plus 25 in limited minutes, and the one with Batum where they are, I believe, a plus 22 in like 220 possessions. I'm kind of going off the top of my head here because I looked them up this morning. The other two main variations are pretty far in the red. Uh, including Covington and including Ubre. Uh, with Ubre, they were a negative seven in right around 200 possessions. Now, none of those counts are high enough where you would actually put too much stock into them. That's sort of why I wanted to look at the core four because that has the highest sample size. But the fact that Batum is one of the variations that are in the positive makes sense to me. It makes logical sense to me because I think his skill set fits what you need. So I would certainly keep him in there because he has succeeded and the team has succeeded while he's been there. Yeah, and... Look, I think easing Kelly back in a bench role is also probably the way to go just from a conditioning and reintegration perspective, right? Like, I know that Nick brought Nico in. Like, Nico misses a few games due to personal reasons and then is just right back in the starting lineup yeah. playing as many minutes as he wants. And Nurse has tried to stick with the same rotations and what have you, but I, I just think it's easier to... Hey, Kelly, go out and play, you know, eight minutes in the first half, eight in the second, whatever it is. I don't know if there'll be any sort of restriction on him. But on top of that, I just think, to your point, Derek, I think the basketball fits make perfect sense. I mean, we've sat here and raved about Batum's entry passing, their ability to run some different sets with him on the floor. I know there was one that was highlighted. I can't remember who by the other day on Twitter, the variation of horns they've been running with Batum sealing somebody at the elbow and then I think that might have been our boy Krell because he might be in the it? chat right now so if you get that and don't credit him like he will cause all yeah, kinds I'm, of I don't actually remember and I don't want to credit or miscredit someone so I just it popped up the other day and it's it's an example of what you can do with Batum right because he's a big target hit with a pass he's a very good entry passer as we've seen during his time here already and Nurse clearly trusts him enough to run know actions and secondary actions through him and so to have that in the starting lineup in a lineup where Tyrese and Joel are going to do most if not all the shot creation right hopefully that's not true for the backup units those units have needed a lot of help it's why every show I bring up Tyus Jones or a different backup ball handler who might be able to come in and help this group get better with Maxi off the floor or with Embiid off the floor and I think Kelly can do that in a small way by being the 
the number two or number three guy, depending on the configuration in those bench groups. So I'm, as I said the other day, I'm way more excited to get Kelly back than I would have been when they signed him in the off season. And, mm -hmm. you know, we had our preconceived ideas and impressions about him and, you know, we'll see if he actually plays or not, but seems like good news today. And also I think it could make some of the other pieces slide into their more natural role, which might mean Marcus off the bench. Um, you know, because at this point you can have Embiid, obviously your starting center, B-Ball Paul as your backup. Maybe then you go a little more small at that backup four spot where that's sliding Covington, uh, maybe increasing his minutes a little bit so that Oubre can play a little bit at the small forward spot. I don't get too deep into positions. My point is you have enough, you know, bigger forwards and bigger wings where you can get creative a little bit more. Uh, and I would like to see a little more chaotic defense leading into transition offense. I think Oubre helps you accomplish that both because he is chaotic and also athletic and also because he allows you to then play other options at that four, uh, four spot. Um, so I am, I'm looking forward to his return for sure. Probably more, like you said, more than I would have expected coming into the season. Uh, am, I, am I thinking this is a big return lineup? But I do think he has attributes that he can give them, uh, which will help. Yeah, and look, like this Celtics team has changed quite a bit since the Sixers played them in the playoffs in 2018. And now they've played them two more times since then. But since that first series of this, like, Joel Embiid era that these teams played together, we've seen that in matchups against Boston, if you put guys on the floor that can't do much with the ball in their hands other than shoot, the Celtics have tortured the Sixers and, you know, completely phased those guys out of lineups. Like, Going all the way back to the very first meeting in the Joel Embiid era. Yeah, yep. like Robert Covington was a very solid starter that entire season and then they play Boston and he couldn't hit a shot. So Boston was like, well, we just don't care about you and we're not going to defend you. And it made the Sixers change their lineup. So Ubre coming back and giving you, you know, one, a wing defender, like a wing sized athletic defender that can help out with the Tatums, the Browns, Drew Holiday, even all the, I mean, Derek White has had a pretty mm -hmm. good year this year already and use him as a, one of the matchups against those guys that's helpful. It's also helpful that if his shot's not going down and you know you hope it is after he started the year absolutely on fire, he can beat a closeout and he can get to the rim and he was doing a decent job, you know, getting fouled. He was a good off-ball cutter along the baseline off of Joel Embiid. Uh not necessarily post-ups, but also face-ups from the elbow as well. So he adds a different dynamic and dimension off the bench, or even if they were to start him, I think that's pretty unlikely, but just adds a different dimension to the team that I think is sorely needed that we've seen a little bit of that since he left the lineup. We have David in chat saying, does the surprising play and great fit of Batum change what Morey will look to do with the roster? I wouldn't say it changes what he'd look to do with the roster. It might change how much you would try to protect Batum and right. trade right now. If they're trading for expiring guys, I don't know how much value Batum has to, for example, the Toronto Raptors, right? right? Like, I, yep. Batum makes sense in, I think if they were to ever say, we're changing our stance on Zach Levine and we want to push chips in for Levine, knowing what Chicago is like as an organization, team that always wants to be like, some baseline of competitiveness and they don't want to do full teardown. I think they at this point feel like they already did their teardown recently and they would probably try to stay 
reasonably good. I think they might be interested in Batum. I don't think Toronto would yeah. be, but it'd be a case by case thing, right? A team that's moving a talented guy, but still wants to compete. I think Batum has a lot of value, but I think the Sixers now have a lot more incentive to try to keep him because Batum has been an absolutely effortless fit for everything they've been doing. Nope. I think that is the right way to approach it. You know, on the one hand, I think Batum is versatile enough that whoever the Sixers acquire, he can play off of them. So I don't worry about that. I do think that he has probably played well enough there where you make an effort to make sure he is not in the deal. He probably has more value to the Sixers than he will be to whatever team he is being traded to or hypothetically being traded to. Since you have enough expiring contracts on the roster, you can probably get around that. But I think of the ones that they have, of the potential matching salaries that they have, he is the one that's going to have the most value. So I agree with almost everything you said there. Well, you know, if you want to go see Nico Batum and Kelly Oubre and all the rest of the guys... And also Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey. I feel like they're and more than small, a yada yada. Small but details, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know, if you want to go see them, I know the place to go, the Game Time app, because buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. And Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the events near you, whether that's sports, music, comedy, or theater. There are killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee. So you can stop stressing over the tickets, start getting hype for all the fun you'll have. Derek, I got shot down by my wife two separate times recently for events that are going on in the city. I saw, and I am not Mr. Festive or Mr. Cultured, <laughs> I saw that the Nutcracker Ballet was here, and I was like, oh, I'll ask if my very festive holiday spirit wife wants to go. She goes, nah, I've seen it enough times. So maybe you and I will have to use the Game Time app to go on a team bonding trip to the Nutcracker since I already got turned down by my wife. But... If we do go end up looking for tickets, I know that Game Time is the place for last minute ticket deals. You don't have to plan months in advance. Game Time's got deals on tickets right up to the day of the event. Exclusive flash deals on tickets for everything that you can imagine. Basketball, baseball, concerts, comedy, theater, and more. And the Game Time guarantee means you'll always get the best price. Find tickets in the same section or row for less. Game Time will credit you 110% of the difference. So snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code PHLY for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code PHLY for $20 <laughs> off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. And no, Puppas, there will not be a new ballet podcast. I promise you that. I actually don't know outside of like dance recitals for my little sisters growing up that I've ever seen ballet otherwise i was gonna say if you think you're uncultured i am not carrying that show there is no chance <laughs> there are a couple topics i might have a prayer of not that one nope. no i mean i could do a video game podcast i could do depending on the genre of movies i could maybe do one every once in a while but five days a week show no, this no, is no. about this is it this, this is the is only topic me. in the world <laughs> i have a chance on i could maybe talk about some drone or photography stuff but that's not going to be an everyday thing Nope, 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 nope. Certainly not starting. Not, you know, P-H-L-Y ballet. That's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it is happen. at the Academy of Music, a Philadelphia institution. So that is technically within P-H-L-Y's well, scope, purview, I guess yeah. you could say. Purview is probably a better word for that. But yeah, I, if we were to ever do a P-H-L-Y ballet podcast, I'm we, would not, have better options. we would not yep. be the two guys to do it. Where do you want right. to go with next, Derek? <laughs> Or I guess let's, we haven't talked, we didn't really talk about the matchup with Boston, right? We talked about sure. Kelly and 
and Batum. I guess, is there something specific that you are looking for in this game, whether it's a, an adjustment, a rotation change, or it's something that they need to do differently that obviously they won the first matchup, and yep. I think we both agreed we're pretty clearly the, the better team in that game. Until the final, final yeah, two whatever. minutes or so, yeah. yeah. But at the follow-up matchup, they had some some real struggles, and I'm wondering if anything jumped out from there that needs to be corrected. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to who, to who played. Uh, Batum was not available in that game, was he? Batum was not available. Yeah. It was also, I believe, Porzingis and Jalen Brown were both out, if I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So it's really tough to take too much from that one. That was part of what made that game frustrating was the fact that they had two of their high-level starters out and they still won that game. Um, you know, it goes back to a lot of, I think, what we would have said coming into the season. How does Maxi respond against a tough matchup? He's had ups and downs against that team. And how does Embiid survive against a team that can go five out pretty much the entire game? Uh, so I don't know if there's anything too much new there. But also, like, how does... Batum, Handel, Tatum, or Brown, whoever he's matched up against. Like, there's individual matchups that I think are pretty interesting because that is still a team that w they have so much space and they have so much ability to attack mismatches, and, and the combination of those two makes them real hard to defend at times, and especially against a team like the Sixers who wants to keep Embiid near the rim. How does just all of that work together? Um, I think that is going to be real tough in every matchup. Yeah, and Dave in the chat says, can we please make Horford look as old and slow as he did on the Sixers? I would say that was my number one complaint that I made during and after that game was that, and this has been long been my complaint about how the Sixers have approached the Celtics matchup. For the last couple of years, I think Al Horford, while still being a impactful player in many ways, is definitely exploitable if you put him in space and make him defend smaller, quicker, faster players. And, I think a big part of the trap that they fell into in that last matchup was, hey, we're just going to keep throwing the ball to Joel at the elbows and play mm -hmm. through him there. And look, that's where Al Horford wants to be, right? Not only has he played Joel a million times at this point, he spent a whole season in the gym with him, practicing against him, you know, going against him in behind the scenes type stuff where they're working on things together. And he knows every move, every single thing that Joel wants to do when he has the ball there. And by turning his ability it in, to just come down with a swipe down right when oh, Joel's going, yeah, right when he's motion. going yep. up and resets the possession effectively, and then you're down to like six seconds on the shot clock. It just, I don't know why they're so insistent on trying to make that work. Now, some of that is, it's very tough, even with the growth that Tyrese Maxey has made to ask him to try to essentially be the most important offensive player in that matchup when he just to start a possession has to get through Derek White yep. and or Drew Holiday at the same time. Like that's a really tough ask, but you have to try to bring Horford out instead of just saying you can bang with Joel on the block and in the post for as long as you want. And that Boston wins that way. They, they will let the role players shoot, you know, 25 threes by themselves and be very content with that. Yeah. So I want to see that change. Really I want to see a lot of, a lot of pick and roll and, you know, we'll see what happens with that.
The problem is they also have Drew as a point of attack defender, and they're they're comfortable letting Drew switch on to Joe and just yeah. dealing with it. They're just a real tough matchup for this team. Uh, and I do worry a little bit if they drop this game here, uh, the fan base might panic. Because at that point, they'll have lost, what, like I think four of the last six, including two against Boston, two games without Joel, and yada, yada, yada. Um, long season, but I would love to see them have a good showing against this team, in part because it makes our podcast a little more optimistic and i think fans want to be <laughs> optimistic but in part because this is such an important and interesting matchup you'd love to have some optimism because they don't play this team again until is it late february or march it's a while uh i wanted to say it was january but that's a, a good question that i wish i knew the answer off february 27th okay there you go you were correct so yeah um great matchup they're they're, they're a real good team i hate to say it i hate hate to freaking say it but they're a real good team yeah, I mean, I think at this point they're considered probably the front runner to win the title. Based yeah, on and their that. offense is probably underperforming based on expectations. Like they are an eighth-ranked offense right now, and I think uh, at this point last year they were like on pace to blow away the uh, best offense in the league. Now that's going to happen a lot in recent years because we're getting smarter about offense. Like it wasn't, it was only two decades ago where people went like, Oh, maybe that shot that's worth 50% more. Maybe we should actually shoot that. Uh, so I, especially with pace increasing and chain rule changes, that being said, they were real good to start last year. Offensively, they tailed down on the stretch. Um, they have not necessarily reached their potential. I don't think offensively, maybe part of that's because people are coming in and out of the lineup, but I think they're real talented. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think they're, they're legit. I mean, we both picked them to win the title, didn't we? Yes. And I actually saw while you're on that topic about offensive improvement and the way the league has changed, I saw a graphic the other day. I wish I could find it about where teams are at on offense to start a season. And it almost always gets better. Yep. And the level of offense right now is higher than basically any other yeah. season. And that's with, we've had several seasons over the last few years that are, this is the best offensive year in history. And again, when Kyle and I say that, that's on a per possession basis, not just the fact that the league is getting quicker paced. It's that they're getting more efficient every time down the floor. Here we go. Here it is. So the first month of the season, points per 100 possession across the NBA, 114.2. Last year, which I believe was the best offensive season ever in terms of points per 100 possessions, it was at 112.7 for the first month and got up to 115.1. And Derek, you can see this graphic yourself here. It goes up by at least several points every single season from the first month to the end of the month. So, I mean, I can't even imagine what the whole league's going to look like. Indiana is basically a cartoon of NBA offense, but certainly Boston, they, they are an ideal NBA team in 2023, right? Yep. They have shooting at every position. They have guys who can beat closeouts at basically every position. You have two and three creators on the floor at any given time. And I mean, even Porzingis, like he's a guy who has carried offenses before. He's not being asked to do that now. It's doing a lot more, you know, stretch big, pick and roll type stuff, but you can throw the ball to him and ask him to create shots. So they're, I mean, they're an unbelievably dangerous team. And that's on top of the fact that these guys are all very good defenders too. Like their top five guys are all very good defenders in their own right. So yeah, I mean, they're the clear cut favorite as sad as it is to say. And if they can beat, if the Sixers can beat them a second time in three games, that's a big deal given where they're at in their own, you know, development cycle. 
to your point on a 114 offensive rating being league average, the Steve Nash led Phoenix Suns back in 2009, 2010, 10, led the NBA with a 115.3 offensive rating. And they weren't even close to being like, there was no one close to them. The Hawks were second with a 111. So that was like a historic defense a decade ago or a little more than a decade ago now. They're, they were so iconic. They have their own nickname right. for the team, right? They're average now. Now that team, if you took that talent, they wouldn't they, like they'd change their style of play. Mike D'Antoni was pretty famous of saying, like, well, if I would have known the math, we would have gone even quicker. Um, so I don't think they would be. I think they'd be shooting more threes. Everything. That being said, offense has gotten better. Teams have gotten smarter. Um, it's a it's a new era, and that Boston team, like you said, is the epitome of it. Is there a team that you can think of that you really liked? Let's say when, when you were younger, that you think about how they would look now, and are like they just wouldn't stand a chance because of how they played. Uh, the AI Sixers. <laughs> yeah, the offensive pro. It's like, it's a classic. They were very good at their time and the, within the context of that league and yep. you give Allen and Larry Brown and all those guys plenty of credit for what they accomplished. If they took as few can threes you, as they took then. Can you imagine a team starting Eric Snow, George Lynch, and Tyrone Hill today? There, you wouldn't start one of those three in today's NBA. There's no chance. No chance. And look, I love that team to death. That was it was incredibly entertaining. I enjoyed that. That's the part of the reason I got into yes. basketball was watching that team. You would never construct a team like that today. Never, never. And thank goodness for that. I and I, honestly, I spent a lot of time wondering, like, man, if they would have just had like some shooting around AI, because like we talk about it, and oh, he got the free throw line so much, he got the paint and the rim so much. Like, just imagine if he had any kind of space whatsoever in a modern approach to basketball. Forget Allen Iverson shooting better from three or more threes. Even without that, he would be so unstoppable if he had modern day spacing. I would love to see oh, it. Love he would to have see been, it. He would have been awesome in today's And like, look, you also say that knowing that if those guys had simply come up at a different time, they wouldn't have had the same profiles sure. as they did back then, right? Like the three-point shot emphasis goes all the way back to lower levels of basketball now, right? Where kids are in AAU and on their high school teams and what have you, just jacking threes from all over the floor. It's much, much, much more common to play four and five out basketball, even at the youth basketball level. Like in many ways, like I know the Phoenix team was a big revolutionary team. One of the forgotten teams that kind of pioneered that style also is the Magic team that went to the finals with Dwight, Dwight where yep. they're playing four out with Rashard Lewis and Turkaloo and Jameer Nelson yep. and all those guys. Like that was a big foundational shift for the league. And then certainly Steph Curry and those guys, that was the, okay, you, just to keep up with the Warriors, everybody's got to buy into this. Or just to keep up with, you know, Maury's Rockets with Harden and, Gordon and Tucker and all these guys who are just bombing threes every game, you have no choice. So yeah, it, it's an apples to oranges comparison, right? You can't just take a team from 2000 and be like, well, they would get their doors blown off, but they would get their doors blown right. off. Yeah. And like you said, those players would be better shooters, all that stuff, but you would just never build like the, the mindset of you have Allen Iverson. Now get four players around him who, who don't care about shooting. That would, that mindset just would not exist anymore. Yeah, you need secondary creation. You need shooting. You need all kinds of stuff. God bless Aaron McKee, the one guy I enjoyed watching on that team besides the guy. That's not I, kidding. I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed watching that team. I just want to enjoy watching him now. Well, here's the thing. The, the cool part about that team was, as much as we're saying, oh, we wish they had more offense, the defensive stuff they would do was very cool and adaptable yeah. at that time. Like, 
they leaned on the full court press a lot more than well, teams do now. And they now. had they had now they didn't switch as much back then, but they had players who theoretically could switch. Like Eric Snow was, you know, strong, pretty good length at yeah. the point guard spot. Aaron McKee could switch a little bit. George Hill or uh, George Lynch could switch a little bit. Um, that team could had a had the makings of a more modern defensive squad for sure. Well, and think about they had like Roger Bell basically didn't wasn't on the team until what. March or April or whatever. Gavin that year. in the chat right now. He's not actually saying anything, but based on what we know about Gavin, he's very <laughs> he's probably confused. not alive yeah. when this team was playing. Yeah, but they were pressing in the playoffs, and you bring in Raja Bell at a moment in uh, Iverson's iconic game one against the Lakers, and yeah, so they did some interesting things, and they were a great, interesting team at that time. I just I'd pray for them hard in yep. a matchup with any team today. Agreed. All right. I think uh, pivoting off of the Allen Iverson conversation, because I'm pretty sure Foco, do they have an Iverson bobblehead? Uh, I assume they have I, I would, I would guess If so, not, yeah. Foco, get on that. You should have an Allen Iverson bobblehead. But Foco is a leading manufacturer of sports and entertainment merchandise with a product line that includes apparel, accessories, toys, collectibles, novelty items, and more. It's the best officially licensed gear for all sports and fandoms. With it being football and tailgating season, it means that overalls, hoodies, hats, sunglasses, and bags, everything you need for a game, Foco has. And Foco has hooked PHLY up and provided awesome pieces for our sets. Foco always has our back for Philly sports, and they have yours too. Get the best gear around by using the link in our description. For all non-presale items, use the promo code PHLY10 for 10% off. We do have Young Property Group, Inc. in the chat asking if they missed the trade talk. You did. We talked about trades at the top of the show. You can always check that out after the live show is over or scroll back. But uh, but yes, that was what we led with. And now I'm going to bring Derek into his favorite segment of every single week, the Sixers stock report. So you can decide, Derek, whether you want to go upside down visor or normal visor today since i know that's been a source of debate in the past oh he's going normal normie mode <laughs> normie mode on me today so we did not workshop who we were going to go over today and i think we should probably instead of just doing players derek can do more abstract concepts i would say so things like sixers defense or individual plays whatever you want to do but i do want to start with one individual person nick nurse stock up or stock down i would still remember blue is down red is up i would still say stock up and here's why i was thinking about this the other day because one of the, the things i was thinking of um you know i tweeted out a stat that in the 16 games that Embiid has played, the Sixers are outscoring opponents by 14 points per 100 when he's on the bench. So they've been able to navigate those minutes. In the two games he's missed, they've been outscored um, by 11.5 points per 100. So they have not been able to become even close to competitive. And I was thinking how much that has a, like, it seems like the Sixers have multiple skill sets they have just enough of to be competitive. One is shot creation. The other is interior defense. Like when Embiid is healthy, you've got Paul Reed coming in as a backup. You have just enough. When Embiid is healthy, you have just enough in terms of Embiid and Maxi creating for each other. You lose one of them and all hell breaks loose. Uh, you just can't navigate a full 48 but the reason I'm bringing this up is I think Nick has done a really good job, you know, because I look at Embiid and Maxi, and neither of them are elite passers. Mm -hmm. As much better as Joel Embiid has gotten, I think he's gotten significantly better. They're not elite passers 
Uh, Embiid might be a good passer for his position. Maxi may be an average passer for his position. But he's found a way to put them in spots where they can find the reads and make the most out of their passing ability. And like I said, you lose one of them, and all of a sudden you have not enough passers. But I think he's found ways to design sets and 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 get everyone doing stuff off ball uh, and get them in the right mindset that they can succeed. And I think that Lakers game was maybe the biggest example of that and the epitome of what they're trying to do. So even though they lost this last one here, I'm still going to give them a stock up because of that. I think that's fair. I, the only reason I brought it up is now that we've seen a couple of games where they effectively had no plan without Joel Embiid. It's at least not a good plan, one that was giving them a chance to really win. I wondered if that had any impact on the overall view of the team. But yeah, I, I think your points are are fair. And I think the most important one to me is Joel having this type of passing season and Nurse's offense and how they're playing, unlocking a part of Joel that Frankly, I didn't think was really there to be unlocked in this way. I think that was that still keeps them in the positive books. And and look, overall, they've been a very good team. So I, I don't want to ding him too hard for you know losing on back to backs in the case of the Minnesota game or losing when Joel's a late scratch, as happened last night. Yeah, I agree. And we do have a super chat from Harrison G. So thank you to Harrison who asked, "Did we ever figure out why Ricky Council?" got cut and re-signed. I don't know for sure. I think they were just trying to give him a chance to see what else was out there. Yeah, because they wanted to – it was smart, right? Javante Smart that they put, yeah. they brought in on the, the two-way deal. And I think they – I'm sure Council and his agent, knowing that there was another two-way guy coming in, probably said something to the effect of, let's see if we have another chance out there. Took a look at things and ended up coming back and – I don't know. I always just assume there's like some kind of money laundering going on when, uh, <laughs> when something like that happens. You put but an accountant visor on Kyle account and you start talking on, about yeah. money laundering. Yeah, I, I don't know. Real, uh, <laughs> real uh, mob move, if, if I would say so myself. All right. I think this is probably a player that we've given stock up to a couple times this year, but this one is probably different. Tobias Harris. Oh, I mean. Big old stock down, ladies and gentlemen. And we did rant about this, or I ranted about this a little bit on the sh- post-game show after the Pelicans game. But I think you can see that when he's not hyper-efficient, and look, he shot 50% from the field against New Orleans. That was fine. The warts to his game really show up a lot more. Like the fact that... He only took two threes the entire game on a night Joel doesn't play and has been fairly gun shy from there for a lot of this year. You know, not there have been some nights where he's been confident. He stepped into some threes, and even when he's been a little bit cold, is still taking the shots and needing to take. But overall, I just think that the volume is not there for him this year. It never has been. He's at 3.4 threes a game. That's actually a full attempt less than what he was taking last year under Doc Rivers. So he's regressing. This is his lowest, yeah, it's bad. his fewest attempts since 20, 2020, 2021. And before that, the last time he was under four attempts a game was in Detroit in 2016, 17. That's just not acceptable. Like he is the clear cut third guy on this team and this roster right now. That's not an ideal situation to be in as a franchise. I think Derek and I both said last night, 
if he's your number four, you're really cooking. But if you're, he's your third guy, a lot of trouble ahead. And I think you're seeing the reason why for that, right? Like he can scale up from time to time and beat up on some bad teams. And, you know, he has helped win them some games without Joel in the past. But the streakiness is just a lot to deal with for a guy that is making $40 million. Like as much as you want to try to set aside the contract because it's an expiring at this point. It is still a big anchor on the team and impacts how they build the rest of the roster for this year and this potential playoff run. So, you know, I, as much as he's had a good start to the year, I think the last week, maybe two weeks, has been pretty rough for him. Yeah. And look, the uh, especially as a fourth option or a third option, I mean, he's not necessarily going to be as consistent as you want. That's part of the nature of it, but what you need is that aggressiveness to be consistent. You need him to take those threes when they're there. He hasn't done that all year. You brought up the stats. It's really bad uh, for him to have fewer three-point attempts since, what, 2016 or whatever you said, in a league that continues to trend upwards. As an off-ball role player, you need him to take those, and then just the decision-making. Like, I went back and rewatched those turnovers. They were mind-bogglingly frustrating. They were even worse the on second yeah, yeah, yeah. watch. And I think that's happened a little bit now. Uh, he is certainly one player who, when he has a, a mismatch to hunt or early offense to get going, he's really good. Um, but you need more consistent decision-making out of him in the half court, and that has not been there recently. So I'll bring up another inconsistent, sometimes maddening player Oh boy! for the next one. Where are you at on D'Anthony Mountain, Derek? <sighs> he wasn't great yesterday. But that being said, I'm still going stock up on D'Anthony. He had a good enough run and a good enough stretch of being a, a productive three-point shooter along with a really good defender that he can have an off night or two here, and I'm still giving him an overall trending up. I think he's fit into his role a lot better of late, tends to look better when he's making his shots, still cannot buy a bucket near the rim, and some of those attempts, again, on rewatch, were even worse than when you saw them the first time. Uh, but overall, I'm still going stock up on him. So while we're on that subject, I know you brought up last night what he's shooting at the the rim yeah. versus three. It is crazy to look at a guy shooting 40.8% 40 from three and is only shooting 40% on field goals. So on two-point shots, which in not even in theory, in practice – are the much easier shot because, hey, spoiler alert, they're closer to the basket. He's been worse on those shots than on threes. It's just like, how is that even possible? Well, and the crazy thing is sometimes you'll see that because, like, it'll be players, like your boy Turk sometimes, settling for, like, contested like, yes. long twos. And you'll see that rather than, like, threes tend to be open. Twos can oftentimes be contested, especially if they're long. But for him to be struggling that much on shots at the rim is wild. It is wild. I, it's He really just blows my mind. I did see, so you can pass this one to me if you'd like. Uh, Biggie in the chat wanted a Marcus Morris stock report. You're killing me. Um, no, I'm willing to do it because I'm right, the one ahead. who called it out. This overstates, I think, the how high it's gone up. Like if we could rearrange the stock up where it's just like, flat and then like a little bit of an uptick i would say that'd be my stock up for morris because look he's made some shots that's basically all it comes down to i still am not a believer in him as a general rule i think defensively he's got a lot of issues now what i would say and i've said this on the podcast several times over the last week 
a lot of the defensive problems that have happened with him on the floor in the last week have either not been his fault or he's been put in situations or in matchups where I just don't think he had a prayer from the start, right? Where when you have him against Jonas Valanciunas and you have to defend a guy where the best defense he can play is bear hugging him and foul him, that's that's not Marcus Morris's fault that he can't stop him or, or stop him from offensive rebounding. By the way, does he think that I'm Bodner? Because he said that's goddamn right, Bodner. Maybe, Maybe he's yelling at me. I actually agree with you. I would, if you <laughs> forced me into it, I would have given him a stock up. That's in large part because I had the stock so low that Penny making stock. making yeah. some shots moves it up. That doesn't mean it's moved up enough to where I'm comfortable playing him defensively, which is really, and that's really most of my concerns with him and criticism yeah. with him. I think he will have nights where he gets hot from the perimeter and can make a shot. I don't think there are any nights really where he's going to look competent defensively. That's Here's the other thing too that I would say that I. I and by the way, we had somebody in the comment section the other day saying like, well, stop looking at him as a 2-3. He's a 4-5 now. And trust me, nobody is looking at him as a wing anymore. We're, <laughs> we're grading him on a 4-5 position. Yeah, and here's what I would say also. I, I think one of my other concerns during his, I think it was his first appearance, the one where he airballed a baseline mid-range jumper, the concern for me at that point was like, okay, he doesn't know his role here. And he's doing things that like, I don't want to see that shot basically ever. And to his credit, in the game since, maybe some of this, I don't know how much Nick talked to him or it's been role or situation or what's being asked of him, but I think he's done a better job of just taking open threes or he's swinging the ball, attacking a closeout and keeping it to like very simplistic, I don't want to say three and D because there's no D, but closeout attack basketball or shooting threes. Like if he just does that, and he's on the floor. Like, I think Marcus Morris can probably still make catch and shoot threes enough that you can play him. And if he's not running hot on a given night, sit him on the bench, say thanks, but no thanks. And that sort of role, he's fine. The The issue that I had coming in, and he kind of confirmed this earlier this week when he was saying, yeah, I was expecting to play a different role here. I don't know that he wants to be in that type of role. And do you keep him happy in that type of role? But as long as he buys into it when he's on the floor, I don't really give a shit if he wants to do it. If he does what's best for the team, I think the base skill level is high enough that he can help them in different situations. No, if he were a plus or a versatile defender, I'm fine with his offensive game. He's yeah. just no. Do you know how much, how many, what the Sixers defensive rating is with him on the court? It can't be good. 126.2. Yeah, that's that's first, a lot of points. Bottom first percentile in the league. Do you know what opponents, their effective field goal percentage is when defended by Marcus Morris? I'm going to guess it's high. <laughs> yes, you're very good. 75%. I was going to say 68 or something like that. So, And that's on 26 field goal attempts. Like that's a, a, that's not a huge sample, but that's not a nothing sample either. And that doesn't even get into his pick and roll defense, which he's been exploited at times as a big pick and roll defender. He is just a real, real bad defender. And I don't think that's going to change. And I hope... I'm wrong because I would rather not watch someone who can be picked on every time down the court defensively, but I think that's where we're at at this point. He did break up a lob in he the, did. Uh, the was, Pelicans game. It was a terrible lob. He got, I will say this, he got back and ran in transition, and that's All right. that's more than I expected. I'm going to throw you a curveball here to close out the show. Terquavion Smith. <laughs> You're acting like I've watched much of the, uh, the Delaware <laughs> That's why Blue it's a curveball. I mean, look. 
he's my guy. So I feel like it's on brand for me to just be in stock up. I have not taken a single look at his numbers prior to this. So I have, I have not watched any games. So this is purely numbers based. <laughs> all right. Not exactly a, a well-informed opinion. He's averaging 23.3 points and shooting 10.3 three-point attempts per game for the Blue Coats right now. That's I, my fucking that's guy right there. all I want there. from him. Bomb away. <laughs> get ready for it because they are going to need you in the second half when they don't get enough ball handlers. To Cravion Smith, key to the title. I just, listen, I love a guy like that who's just going to put up a billion shots in G League games. What is So how many of those is he actually making? 35. Okay, so and on high that, volume where they're probably high difficulty shots in a lot of cases too, I'm yep. okay with that. Whenever you shoot that kind of a volume, you're taking high degree of difficulty shots with a, a pretty wide variety of shots. Uh, so the 35% I'm fine with. And also this is first year with the longer you know, longer three-point line against increased competition. You expect that to go up at that volume, at his age, at the first year in the league. I'm fine with the percentage. I just want to see the attempts. That's my guy, man. I'm riding for Turk. The Huge young, stock the, There are many yep. of the young Turks out here. There are dozens of us, I promise you. I so. bet when you <laughs> forced me into the segment, you were not expecting me to pivot to Turquavion Smith. Right, listen, but I'm trying to help you out in any way I can. We got two different free Turks in YouTube chat today, <laughs> so I feel like the whole show was worth it. Just for that. I, I, I absolutely love that. So uh, you got anything else before we uh, get up on out of here and prepare I mean, for Sixers Celtics tomorrow I hope not. I just night? turned off my computer. Oh, that'd be a real problem then. <laughs> but so anyway, so on our way out, guys, want to say thank you to everyone for being here. My guy, Money Mar, Sam Mayer, Dave, Biggie, Puppas, Brian, Bootzilla. Got an anonymous. It could be anyone. Jim G, I see a lot of familiar faces. Harrison, certainly. Jeff, Gavin, Will, Young Property Group, Inc., which that was a new one for me. <laughs> Love all you guys for being here each and every day. As Do you I think now we're going to get people like like putting their company businesses in here? Just Listen, to get man, they, are, they, they get shout-outs. Uh, if you guys have not already, if you could please subscribe to the channel, hit that bell icon to get notifications every time we go live. Hit the thumbs up button on this specific video. That also helps us out a great deal. Thank you guys again for being with us today. And Derek, I will talk to you soon. Sounds good.